Chatua Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week we remember Johnny Dumfries and in an extended interview with Peter Leake, we explore the story of the XK8. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to the 40th episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you here. Hope you're well and looking forward to the Easter break ahead as we talk to you not far off a year now since we started this podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed it. Hope it's provided a bit of Jaguar light during the dark times that we've had recently. And this week, I'm not going to talk too much at all, actually, to start this episode, because we've got an extended interview, extended because it was just so much fun to record, and such an interesting person to talk to about all aspects of Jaguar, but in particular about the over three decades Peter Leake spent training dealerships right the way through the end of the BL era of Jaguar, under, of course, Sir John Egan, but also during the big milestone of the launch of the Jaguar XK8, which was launched 25 years ago this year, one of our anniversaries we're celebrating, of course, as well, at the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage on the 4th of July. And Peter really does take us through the whole story behind the scenes. So I really hope you'll enjoy listening to what we've got to come in this episode of the podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. But first, we remember a fallen hero, one of the trio who won at Le Mans in 1988 as part of the TWR Jaguar assault on the 24 hours of Le Mans. Johnny Dumfries, who passed away at 62 this week, and Richard remembers him in our Hall of Fame next. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. A bit of a surprise, really, that uh, Johnny Dumfries has left us this week. Yeah, a horrible shock, actually, Wayne. He was a remarkable character, and it's, let's look back. You know, it's not been a great um, period, really, for motor racing in the last few weeks. We we only just recently talked about Murray, and, of course, um, Sabine Schmidt, we lost her, the Nürburgring queen, you know, the lady who, on top gear, got within 10 seconds of um, Jeremy Clarkson driving a Ford Transit van. And earlier this year, a name that will mean a lot to some of our listeners, Barry Griffin, who was one of the leading lights in the Goodyear um, tyre companies here in Formula One in the 80s. Sadly, Barry passed recently as well. So it's not been a start. And now Johnny, which was a terrible shock, really. Um, and I think the world of motorsport is still reeling because, as you and I said when we were talking earlier, he, he looked so well when we saw recent pictures of him. Absolutely. Just 62, started his career in Formula One with JPS, of course, and he was the teammate to Ayrton Senna. He was indeed, and in fact, Johnny and I shared the same birthday as well, and uh, his full name was John Colin Crichton-Stewart. He was born in 1958 and the son of the Marquess of Butte, and of course that meant he was immediately on his birth title, the Earl of Dumfries. He was an interesting character. I first came across him. He he had a number of jobs when he was a young man because he really didn't want to use his title or his family money to become a racer. And he had a number of jobs in his early career. He he worked as a builder. He worked as a painter and decorator. And this will remind a few, if they remember the old late 70s Williams days, he actually was the van driver for Williams and used to go and pick up and deliver spare parts for the team. <laughs> Amazing. And it was something that he he played down throughout his life, actually, until the point where he sort of left motorsport and went and did his duties on the Isle of Butte. Mm. But he did play down the fact that he was of the landed gentry didn't he 
He did indeed. I mean, he, he was not the sort of guy that you, you know, he never suffered fools gladly. Johnny was always outspoken and he had very clear views and great loyalties to people, one of which was Dave Price, which we'll talk about in a minute. But he had very close connections to motor racing from a very early age. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that it was some of his work colleagues that got him into karting. But of course, he also had a close connection through the Williams team because Charlie Crichton, his cousin, was one of my predecessors at Williams. He and Sheridan Thin actually ran the commercial department as it was in those days and Charlie Crichton Stewart was an F3 racer in the 60s and was an incredibly close friend of Frank Williams, Pierce Courage, Bubbles Horsley and the rest of that gang so really there was motor racing in the blood from a very very early age for him. Well he had a very traditional move through motorsport in that he started in single seaters in F3, uh, his first race was in 1984 and then he was sort of spotted, I think, wasn't he? And taken to uh, the John Player Special famous liveried Lotus team within Formula One and started in 1986 at, I believe, the Brazilian Grand Prix. That's correct. In fact, if you go if you go back six years prior to that, he made his mark in Formula Ford um, 1600s in 1980. Um, he acquired a car very early on from a mentor that supported him. Um, Charlie, who I just mentioned, Charlie Crichton Stewart, helped him out with contacts. But in 1983, he um, did a short spell with, I think, from memory it was a guy by the name of Dave Morgan um, and was picked up by Dave Price for 1984 Dave Price very well known in motor racing circles ran the formula uh, ran the Nissan team in world sports cars when we were frequently up against him with the Jaguars in my Walkinshaw days and for 1984 he had immense sponsorship um, for those days for a Formula 3 team with Dave Price and he won 10 races and you know was crowned the 1984 British Formula 3 champion and he got a McLaren Autosport BRDC test drive in a McLaren F1 car as a result so he was no newcomer to the sport and in fact when he joined uh, JPS Lotus Peter War the former team manager of Lotus was an enormous Ayrton Senna fan um, and he at one point was considering pairing Derek Warwick and another a former Jaguar driver with Senna for the uh, 86 season and, and Senna wasn't keen on that at all and there was a bit of discussion that went on and uh, lo and behold through a series of negotiations he became Ayrton's teammate in those famous black and gold cars for the 1986 season. Well of course he lost his job as it were at JPS of course they got the Honda deal after that and that brought Nakajima into the team and they weren't about to uh, push out and Senna to one side so instead it was Johnny Dumfries but that was when I think I mean it's interesting because a lot of the obituaries and, and stuff that's come out in the motorsport press over the last week or so Autosport saying he was best remembered for uh, co-driving with Ayrton Senna in Formula 1 but to us Jaguar fans he was best known for his career in world sports cars and in the world sports car championship he started with the Acuria Cost C2 team which I know Mike Haller within our midst is very familiar with having been a part yeah. of that as well yeah. um, and of course to all of us he will always be associated with number two in 1988 driving alongside Andy Wallace and Jan Lammers to that epic victory he will indeed because that, that interestingly he, he drove Richard Lloyd's um, Porsche 956 with Kenny Atchison at, at Fuji back in 1985 and then he gained a lot of experience. He actually had a Marinello Ferrari testing contract where that proved to be pretty much a dead end. And he made probably perhaps one of the biggest mistakes of his career when he got a phone call from Bernie Eccleston who invited him to try the Brabham and he turned that down. So, of course, 
after you're right, after he left and Nakajima moved into the seat, he went through a series of um, I did, in 1987, he, he went to Silverstone, as you say, with a Gure Kost. And then he was invited to join again Richard Lloyd's squad uh, for the brand's perhaps uh, thousand kilometres. And it was really there racing alongside in America as well with Price Cobb that he was noticed by Tom Walkinshaw. And Tom brought him into the team. And although he didn't win as many races that season as the pairings in America did in IMSA, Tom rated him very, very highly, and he felt that he was a very valuable team member. And as you rightfully say, when it really mattered and the chips were down, the three of them, Wallace, Lammers and good old Johnny, they did the job and brought that Jaguar across the line in front of everybody else at that famous victory in 1988. Yeah, incredible. I mean, he had all sorts of little drives before and after TWR. Of course, he left uh, TWR in 1989 after Tom mm. had his reshuffle that year. He virtually disappeared, didn't he, from motorsport after that almost entirely? Well, he did in 89. He went on to be part of the new Tom's Toyota World Championship team with John Watson and Jeff Lees. You know, they alternated as his teammates, but it, it wasn't a great start. I mean, he got off to, he had a spectacular crash at Monza where he rolled heavily, uh, I think, in the, um, in the Lesmo barriers. And Toyota just couldn't match the pace of the uh, Saubers and the Porsches and the Jaguars, I think. I think he had a fourth place or something at Dijon. But anyway, he did further testing and um, logging mileage for Benetton. But really, with 1990 proving to be very disappointing, he, he had a couple of forays. As you said, in 91, he went back to Le Mans with Cougar Porsche. Um, and then his racing career, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, because that's a pretty amazing career that he had, just fizzled out. And of course, his father passed away in 1993. And he inherited the title of becoming the seventh Marquis of Butte. And if you, you look back at the family, uh, the third Earl of Butte was actually a British Prime Minister back in 1762 under King George III. And quite clearly, there was a pair of boots to be filled when, sadly, his father passed away. And he really started to work very hard on the family and the family business. He stayed, I'm told, very much in touch with few people in motor racing. But Dave Price was one of his all-time lifelong motor racing friends and they stayed in touch for many many years but you're right he, he literally changed his life completely i think there was even an attempt a few years uh, after that he actually tried to get some cars up to the isle of butte but logistically that didn't work out and he immersed himself in his title in his business and his family uh, which he loved and cared for very much indeed and uh, when that news came through this week um, it must be a terrible shock to so many of the people we've talked about who worked so closely with him in that time at what is really still a tender age of 62. Absolutely. Well, Martin Brundle uh, referred to him as one of the members of the Rat Pack. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> <laughs> there are a number of drivers over the years, guys like Eddie Irvine and Mikasalo and Johnny Herbert and a number of them. You know, who got, if you go right back, the 3,000 teams. Adam Cooper, the journalist, is a great one to talk to about it because a lot of them disappeared off into Formula 3000 overseas in Japan and things. And um, they hunted as a pack and they were they were wild on the track and they were wild after hours. And they had some wonderful times. So, of course, hence the name the Rat Pack was formed. And uh, great times were had and they, they were a mischievous bunch, but also they were very serious about their racing when the chips were down. When you have a chat like this, you realise what an amazing career Johnny had. And um, I think he deserves a very, very special place in our Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiast 
Events Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're looking at another one of our anniversaries this year, 2021, of course, marking 25 years since the arrival of the X100, or as most of us know it, the XK8. And here to tell the story of not only just the XK8, but his own career in Jaguar as well is Peter Leake. Hi, Peter. Hi there, Wayne. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Great to have, uh, well, Jaguar royalty amongst us, actually. Oh, you you flatter me, sir. You flatter me. (laughs) It must have been a fascinating journey to end up in your role. And you were in charge of training, basically, all of the dealers that sold Jaguars during the XKA era and beyond. So let's start at the beginning with you, Peter. How did you end up going to Jaguar? What was the path that led you there? An interesting question, Wayne, because I, I, I'd love to say that I was I was Jaguar through and through from apprentice all the way through, but it's not strictly true. Um, many of the m- many of us remember the old British Leyland days, and I'm sure uh, I see a wry smile on your face, and I think to myself, yes. Um, but I started as an Austin apprentice at Longbridge in 1974 um, on the sales and marketing side, so I came through that and. When I finished, I was offered a job in fleet sales. Um, in those days, fleet sales was managed by British Leyland from Redditch in Worcestershire. And they'd already started to divide the company up a little bit. So I was responsible for order control for JRT, Jaguar Rover Triumph. Uh, and as and many people have heard of, of the old JRT, which was almost, if you will, the luxury end of BL. And that involved uh, placing orders on the factory uh, and getting to know the factory people going over to Browns Lane one day a week, um, and and then it also included another one day a week at Land Rover, and three days a week at uh, the sales and marketing place. But I started off, and I think the love of Jaguar started even earlier than that, to be honest, way because my father was a motoring journalist, but he was also an amateur racing driver. He used to drive Aston Martins mainly, and of course the main competitor for Aston Martins in the 60s and so forth were Jaguar. Uh, mainly in the form of E-Type or indeed XK120. And he was he was great friends with John Pearson, who's a well-known uh, Jaguar aficionado uh, racing driver. So uh, that really was the way in. And then when the company started to separate, which was around about 1980, when John Egan came on board in 1980, I was actually out on the road on fleet sales trying to sell British Leyland products. And I often say to people, we were the only field force that were trained in self-defense uh, because some of, some of the customers you met would pin you up against a wall. Now, I'm six foot three and a rugby player, and uh, I still managed to be pinned against the occasional wall. But it wasn't because of Jaguar products, I hasten to say. Um, but they were interesting times. And there was a love of Jaguar that came really from both uh, a young lad uh, growing up, seeing these cars racing, but at the same time, experiencing the people at Browns Lane, the people at Jaguar, who were, they were different. They were, they, they had passion for what they did. And I remember, a, a particular, if, if I can tell this short story, there was a, a, a Series 3. We launched Series 3 in 1979. And uh, this particular car was for the chairman of Granada TV Rentals. It was a Quartz Blue Series 3. Now, Quartz Blue was a difficult paint to paint. And I shan't forget, we managed to get the car done and got it out to Norwich, where, where the car was going. And I was called over there by the dealer, 
which was my agent at the time, and they said, can you come and have a look at this car? There's something wrong. And I thought, it's the paint. It's the paint. I got over there, and there wasn't. It was a problem with um, each piece of glass in the in the car. And if, if anybody remembers Series 3, there was quite a few bits of glass in the early cars. And each one was slightly damaged. How that happened, God knows. But anyway, they were damaged. And I rang Jaguar, and rather than 53 bits of paper to get it signed off, the service engineer at the time, a guy called Cliff Rogers, just said to me, he said, Peter, I'm going to ask you one question. He said, if you were the customer, would you accept that car? And I, I said, well, no, I wouldn't. He said, that's good enough for us. Tell them there'll be an overnight delivery of glass, get it fitted. And after that, that, that was a, a light bulb moment for me. And I thought, one day I'm going to join the company. And I came off the road in, 80, in the beginning of 82, and the opportunity came up as they were starting a, a sales training side for dealers. And uh, I, I applied for the job and literally came straight through. And I never looked back, Wayne. It was, it was, it, it's been a fairy tale uh, ride. It really has. And you know that story there is is sort of at odds, really, with the the picture we get painted in modern times of what British yeah. Leyland and in particular Jaguar was like at the time. We get this vision yes. of shocking customer service and shocking build mm -hmm. quality, but yes. it wasn't always yes. like that, was it? This is a very touchy area because, as we know, um, for example, our XJ40, which actually was a very good car, and certainly, certainly by the time Ford had taken hold of the company, we'd really got the car right. But in fairness, if every car hadn't been right, we wouldn't have been in business. It was as simple as that. But yes, there were issues, and there were issues under the British Leyland era, one of which was investment. There was a lack of investment. And uh, we had ABS brakes ready to go in the late 70s, but they were shelved. The five-speed manual gearbox that we were developing, that was shelved as well. All part of the Leyland sort of cutbacks, which then put us back of so many years when we finally got out into the outside world. So, yeah, it wasn't all bad, but I think during the hard times, it was when everybody pulled together and the customers were good to us. I must be honest, the customers were good to us, as were our dealers in the main. So, you know, it was... I remember John Egan uh, opening one of our training courses because uh, I was doing the dealer training by 82, 83. And, uh, and he made it quite clear that we hadn't got it right yet, but we needed the dealer support. And in fairness, the dealer said, yeah, John, you've acknowledged it. We're with you. We'll help and we'll work with you. And that was the kind of atmosphere you were walking into coming out of British Leyland. It was, it was a breath of fresh air. It really was a breath of fresh air. He's often marked as the saviour of Jaguar, mm. uh, Sir John mm. Egan. Would you think yes. that's right? Uh, it, 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 this is always going to be personal. Um, uh, if you've read his book, um, Saving Jaguar, which I believe is a good read, so it is a good book, I believe that he was the saviour of Jaguar together with his team. And I think and John would be the first to, to acknowledge that, that the team were a, a part of that. And that team included the workforce, the workforce, the dealers, and let's not forget suppliers because they came in for a lot of stick. And uh, many Jaguar, Jaguar people will know that Dunlop, you know, the maker of the Oval Tire, and Lucas, the Kings of Dark, or the Prince of Darkness, you know, all these names that we conjure up. But they, they realised they had to change as well. And most came to the party. I say most, not all, but most. Well, of course, the dealer network is our main point of contact as customers with the Jaguar brand. It is where you first interact with Jaguar, and yeah. it is make or break, isn't it? That is That experience is so important to get people in to buy the car and then also be an advocate of the brand. So when you arrived yes. and you had this job of training yeah. these dealers, 
what was the first challenge? How do you even start? <laughs> well, do you know, Wayne, the first challenge was a personal challenge, and it's one that I've, uh, that's that been a challenge since I left school. I actually have a voice impediment, a stammer, and it is, it's, it's not noticeable because I choose my words. I choose what I say. So if I hesitate for a moment, it's because I'm trying to find the right word. And my boss said, how are you going to stand up in front of people all around the world if you've got a voice impediment? I said, well, give me the chance and I'll do it. And he looked at me and smiled and he said, I believe you will. And that was a sort of attitude you had at Jaguar. You can do it. If they could see you've got the will to do it, they'd be with you. But from a dealer point of view, I think part of the issue, certainly in the UK, was the fact that Jaguar dealers were part of the British Leyland dealer network. And it was known, uh, this is again, this, uh, this is either myth, legend or fact, or I'm not sure. But quite often when uh, regional managers in the days of British Leyland were going out to wholesale Allegros and marinas and cars like this, dealers refusing to take them. And then they would say, right, we'll take your allocation of Jaguars off you if you don't take them. You know, a little bit of arm around the back. So I think, I think with dealers, they are, they are the face of the brand. And John Egan was very keen to stress that, that without dealers, we're finished. We, 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 we haven't got a chance. And certainly in America, uh, the dealers came on board because they sold half half of what we made, give or take, and they came on board, and that was a great move forward. And in the UK, we, we during the eighties started to separate Jaguar away from BL, and as you know, in nineteen eighty four we went independent anyway, um, and so it was a it was a tough battle, and uh, it was one that. As a training manager, getting involved in training people, particularly when the product wasn't maybe at the level it should have been at. That was never easy, but they recognised that their livelihood depended on it. So from a trading point of view, people were actually very proud of being part of the brand and salesmen were actually very, very proud to represent the brand wherever I went around the world. And, oh, there's a million and one stories from around the world, but you can imagine. Uh, but no, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a task, but it was a task well worth the effort. And of course, it paid off and the dealers and Jaguar worked together very, very well during that period. I suppose it's a bit of a balance between recognising that it's a business and it has to make money and money is time yeah. in, a, in a dealer's day, but Absolutely. also balancing that with having to provide the level of customer service that people are going to expect from a luxury car brand. Yes. Yes, it's a, it is a balancing act. And I think I, I, might, I, I could stand corrected on this, but uh, it was during the Egan era, um, warranty on cars. Back in the 60s, as soon as you drove a car, whether it was a Jag or anything else, as soon as you drove it off the forecourt, it was over to you. So if it broke down 100 yards up the road, bad luck, you know. But Jaguar introduced the three-year 60,000-mile warranty, which when we introduced this, people looked at it and said, you can't afford to that because your warranty bill is so high. And John Egan said, well, I'm sorry, but that is where we're heading. That, that, you know, this is where we need to be if we're, if we're going to win the confidence of our customers. And, of course, when you offer a warranty, which today, that's a very average warranty, but in those days, it was groundbreaking. And, uh, and customers said, well, if you've got the faith in your product, then we've got to give it a go. And uh, we did, because XJ40 did cost us quite a lot of money in terms of warranty, we, and we were aware of that. Uh, but this was as we were improving it towards the end of the Egan period as Ford came on board. And we were able to offer this warranty. But it was against the backdrop of, you better get this right and the warranty bill better come down because otherwise, as you say, we're in a business. And if we're not making money as a business, we're not here for very long. 
I suppose one of the challenges as well is getting consistency across the dealer network because, you know, you're bound to have some that are really good and then some that are like, who's this guy trying to tell us how to run it? We'll do it our way, thanks. Was that a challenge yeah. that you had? Yes. Um, you've hit the nail on the head. You're almost talking as though you're a customer, Wayne, there. <laughs> that's excellent. Um, yeah, I would say that's true. Um, uh, I, I, if I talk for UK only, back in the 70s, 80s, maybe early 90s, uh, a lot of them were family businesses. Uh, some of them small family businesses, others much, much larger. Today, you won't find many family businesses as such without big investment. One of ours is Sturgis, of course, of Leicester. They're, they are one of the big ones that are still with us, still going. Um, but we saw many drop by the wayside. But it, at the time, uh, certainly during the 80s, uh, it was, we need these people because they understand how to look after customers. They're a little business and they need to do that. We weren't high volume at the time, so it was it was doable. But as the volumes increased, you needed to put it more on a, on a, on a business basis, as it were. Uh, but it was tough. Um, because you had the the, the 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 philosophy of Jaguar, and our heritage to us is so important, as you know. Um, uh, whereas with big dealer groups, and I'm not knocking them because they 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 are their own businesses in their own right. They also have their philosophy, and what you need is that balance. So, what's the customer expecting when he walks in? Some want that that sort of glory of Jaguars. Others just say, "What's the price?" And and and, well, and the two don't necessarily mix very well, but uh, it is difficult. But it's understanding. We drew a line in the sand to say, listen, with regards to our heritage and understanding Jaguar, there are the fundamentals that you must understand. You need to understand that because otherwise you're not Jaguar. You're not getting it. Um, but that was understood by by everyone, in fairness. Um, and, and it was a pleasure to work with people, particularly overseas. When you turned up as a Jaguar person, you were almost fated we're just trainers, you know, we're just doing a training job, but, but you were from the factory. So when you turned up at the dealership in, in Perth, in Western Australia, it was, wow, red carpet out and all the rest of it. You go, uh, well, actually, just a cup of tea will do with a biscuit. Is that all right? You know? and, and it, but you didn't realise just how strong the brand was. It was just very, very, and I think it still is today. And in fact, possibly even more so, some, some would argue. Well, there's the day-to-day -day running of dealerships, selling cars. Then there's the new models that come along and preparing the ground for them. And we'll talk about how you launch the XK8 through the dealer network in just a moment. But before we do, Peter, um, yes. literally days before this interview, you, you had to go to a funeral. Uh, and it's, I think, right that we just mentioned Mike Beasley because he was mm. one of the key figures, wasn't he, in Jaguar? And a guy that had yes. gone from being an engineer on the shop floor to managing director. Yes, effectively right. Mike, Mike's history, and I don't know his early history, but I think he came to Jaguar originally from Ford, many years before Ford owned us. So I believe that to be the case. I could stand corrected. But Mike was pivotal in not just the engineering and manufacturing side at Jaguar, but also in the running of the company. So there's that famous picture of John Egan sat on the bonnet of Series 3 outside the main doors of Brands Lane, and, he, and he's flanked either side by all the, the, the famous board of directors in those days, of which Mike Beasley was one. Mike, Mike helped greatly with the transition over to Ford from, from the, well, initially from Leyland into the Egan era, and then from Egan era over. Uh, as you know, Bill Hayden was the first managing director that we had uh, from Ford, who took over from John Egan when John left in June 1990. Um, 
uh, but Mike Beasley was always there supporting, running the everyday business and so forth. So um, really was quite a character. Um, if there was bad news to be delivered, Mike was, Mike was the go-to man if you needed to do it. And uh, because he understood the business and people respected him. They didn't always agree with him, but they always respected him. And uh, as, as far as I'm concerned, he was one of the greats of Jaguar. He was one of the, probably one of the unsung heroes. He would never be, for example, Norman Jewis uh, or maybe a John Egan, not out there in front of people. But he was there and he was the one doing the business and respected for it. Great man. Great man. Well, Mike Beasley, who passed away uh, earlier in uh, March 2021, uh, memories yes. of him there. Uh, but let's talk about that Ford era that he was so instrumental in. And let's mm. talk about that XK8, because it is 25 right. years, as I say, since yes. the launch. And I guess the story sort of starts in 1990 when at Le Mans, TWR pulled off what was to be their final victory in Group C. That's kind of where the story began for XK8, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, this is where you always feel a little bit nervous because when you talk to people like BMW or Porsche and there's a sort of massive story and a great corporate event, with us, it's a bunch of engineers fiddling around at Whitley on the back of a fag packet and uh, going, what do you think of this? Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, we'll, we'll give it a go. Um, I know that's been very, very derogatory, but I think it, it, it is right. Probably round about that era, at the, end of the, at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. I think if we start with Ford, if we may, just to start with that, because as you know, we went independent in 1984 and all of us as employees, um, uh, had shares in the company and that had a massive effect psychologically on people it's you're working for your company it's my company i'm working for and, and as a psychological input that was massive uh what happened was as we reached the end of the 80s it wasn't just ford but general motors and i believe toyota and one or two others were interested in jaguar because that was the era when um when when uh let's let if I can use high volume manufacturers, we're actually getting interested in buying into the luxury sector because many of them understood that you don't just suddenly design and build a luxury car. It, it doesn't work that way. You've got, to, you've got to have a pedigree behind you. And I think Lexus have probably been the most successful at doing it um, from Toyota, but it took them years. And if you remember in the very first year of Lexus being on sale in Europe, not a single car was sold in Switzerland because it wasn't seen as a luxury car end of. Not, not the deal or anything like that. It was the, the whole look charisma of it. So Ford came along, and we know it was a hostile takeover or a hostile bid that was put in, and we won't go into detail of it, but at the end of 1989, so by 1994, Ford owners. And, of course, the pressure's on. Um, and I think it's fair to say that if you take money to one side with Ford, because without that, undoubtedly, without Ford money, we could have been in trouble. But also the timing of it. If you remember, during the early 90s, there was a sort of a blip, a sort of a mini recession. And of course, we weren't in a position to defend ourselves, but luckily Ford had bought us by that stage. Meanwhile, we already had a car on the drawing board. <laughs> drawing board had been there 10 years. I think, we, I think we used to bring a cake out every year and just put another little candle in and say XJ41, XJ42, the, the coupe and convertible versions of the F-Type. Uh, Ford took one look at this and said, sorry, you've been messing around with this for far too long. You've just added bits on, done this, done that. It's a pig's breakfast. And that, and that in effect, they said, that's it. And they canned the project, literally, as you say, just after Le Mans 1990, so 91. 
but there was a yen and a feel that we needed to do something. Now, um, many people will remember that during that early Ford period, because they, they didn't just throw money at it. That isn't what happened. They, were, they wanted to look at the business plan, where we were going, what we were doing as a company. And the first thing we needed to do was do something with our sports car range. Because, Wayne, as you know, um, we only had two car range. We had the XJ, and as it happens, the XJS, that was, that's all we had. There wasn't anything else. Oh, sorry, there was XJ220 that was to make an appearance. and so, But, but, but normal, normal everyday product. And so in 91, we did the uh, 91 stroke 92, we did the facelift to the, to the XJS, which gave it another lease of life. But don't forget the XJS, when, when it finally went out in 96, when XK was launched, was, was what, 21 years old. So that was a long reign. And it was a car that visually hadn't changed that much. It was extraordinary that it lasted so long. Because winning the European Touring Car Championship in 84 had lifted the spirits of the car and the factory, in fairness. But meanwhile, they, they, they got a group of engineers together. And Keith Helfit, who designed the... Um, who designed XJ41 as well. He did, he did XJ220, uh, was, was part of uh, Jeff Lawson's team that got together to design this car to have a look because they've been told 41's gone, you can start again. And people are probably aware that during those early years, it wasn't an official uh, project. So the X100, as you rightly called it at the start, the X100 was not an official project. It was, come on, lads, you know, Bit of, bit of after work and we'll check it out. We'll do a little bit here and there. Um, I don't think I'm being derogatory because that's effectively what it was. Uh, and Ford looked at us. And once we'd done the, uh, the facelift of the XGS, we then launched X300. And people mustn't forget the significance of that car because the way we used to launch cars in the past was that Whit Whitley would design something. Um, it was known as the bunker. Roger Putnam, our sales and marketing director, used to call it the bunker. And sales and marketing not consulted. They'd build a car. The bunker would open momentarily. A car would pop out. And just as we turn around to sales and marketing and say, excuse me, the bunker would shut. <laughs> and that's the lot. And there is your car. Well, Ford recognized these chimneys and actually wanted to do something about it. So uh, we started looking at, a product, at, at this project behind the scenes. But X300 was important, not because it was... It was, if you if you like, the next stage on from from XJ40 because its underpinnings were XJ40. Let's make no bones about that, which which means it, they were good. Um, but with XK8, it was to be a new car, and they and it wasn't called XK. They was it was X100, and so they did their drawings and they started putting some ideas together. And when you first look at XK8 and you looked at those early clay models, there's definitely a uh, a, a, a doffing of the hat to uh, XJ, XJ41 because the front is very, very similar. But that's possibly where the similarities ended, to be honest. Uh, but it was from there that we started pulling it together. With X300, when we launched it, it was done as a complete launch with, 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 with uh, working groups working between finance, for example, and production, production and, and manufacturing, manufacturing and sales and marketing. So in other words, they got us out of these these silos, if you will, and got us talking. So project teams were something that they did. And I say on my talk on XK8 that Ford gave us outside of money. They gave us products, they gave us processes, and they gave us people. And what's interesting is that, as you know, Nick Shaler joined us. I think it was 92. I might be, I might be wrong there. We'd already started looking at XK8. And he became a Jaguar man through and through and became almost the face of XK8 to the general public. So it started... You know, it was as drawings in the background, 
but with certain criteria, one which was the AJ20, the AJ26 engine and the use of the XJS floor pan. Um, because that floor pan had proven its worth. Uh, and also, it was the same floor pan that we, that we then used on Aston Martin on the DB7. It was the same floor pan. And I remember dealers saying to me, because part of my job was taking them on factory tours as part of the training. And we were in Castle Bromwich, where we just did body and white then. And there were these five or six uh, floor pans just lined up. And not with computer stuff all over them, but with a little label with a piece of string on it said for Aston Martin on it. And I said, there you go. <laughs> and, and that's how it was in those days. But you're right. Yeah, the, the early days of XK8 was more of an undercover before it was an official project in 93. But what we did was follow the success of X300's launch. And that really, to my mind, is what really gave us the head start. Well, of course, the DB7 Aston Martin you know, it's more than just a passing resemblance. The story of those two cars are completely yes. linked. And, yes. of course, Tom Walkinshaw having, as you mentioned, won yeah. with the XJS in 1984 in the European yeah. Touring Car Championship. Yeah. He knew how to make that car good. Yeah. Do you think the reason why he didn't just get the green flag was that fact that, as you said, there was a recession in the early 90s. They'd launched the XJ220. Mm. It had taken the world by storm. They'd taken yes. all these orders from all these wealthy people who had effectively mm. gone broke in the time it had taken them to bring it to market. And they got badly burned, didn't they? Do you think that was part of the worry around getting this off the ground? I, I think there must have been... There, there will always be an overture link, won't there, to situations like that i tend to agree with you um i don't know i think the story behind xj220 is 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 an interesting one because if you remember in 1988 we showed and i was at i guess I, I was at the, i think i was at that show just trying to remember where we showed the prototype xj220 if you remember and of course the engine was the quad cam v12 because the the man behind xj220 was not tom walkinshaw it was Jim Randall, who was Jaguar's engineering director, who worked directly for Mike Beasley. So he was the, he was the driving force. And I think they called it Group 9 or something, where you take a, a prototype sports car and make it roadworthy, effectively. But, of course, the power-to-weight ratio was wrong and all that for a road car. Uh, but the car itself was much longer. The XJ220 was much longer. And, of course, when Ford bought us, they put the, the brakes on everything. So if you can imagine, 1988, we're riding high. We've won Le Mans for the first time in 31 years in 88. You know, we were almost drunk on success, and that is dangerous, as we know. And we've come through 88, 89, Ford coming, bang, we've got you, 1990, recession comes along, brakes come on, and people then have a look at it. And Walkinshaw was given the project of looking at the feasibility. But as everything with Tom, he did it his way rather than consult anybody at Jaguar. He was going to do it his way. Um, and then we finally get the car out. And of course, it was the fastest road car in the world for about five minutes before the McLaren F1 came along, as we know. Um, but yes, it may have had an impact. But I think what had more of an impact was the fact that recession had hit us. And therefore, we were faced yet again with a limited budget. And that's always been our story at Jaguar is a limited budget. People seem to think that when Ford came along, in came buckets of money. Money came in, of course it did. Otherwise, we couldn't have done anything. But they weren't, because Ford were not stupid. They weren't just going to throw it at it and go, let's just see what happens. Uh, they weren't like that. That was not their modus operandi. We had to prove ourselves. And hence, when I said X300 was important, we got that right. But and the importance, and I think this cannot be stressed too strongly, is that XK8 was the first all-new Jaguar 
under Ford ownership. So can you imagine the pressure on the, on the, on the team? And we have what's known as job one. Job one is the, is the, is the first car, is the first car off the line that's saleable. And I believe that was June 90, uh, 1996 was the job one date. And this is going back 1993. It takes most uh, manufacturers five to seven years to develop a car. And officially, 93 to 96 is three years. But of course, we did start a bit earlier, of course. Uh, so the pressure was on. But Ford, uh, Jim Padilla, who was the, the engineering over, overseer from America, he said he, said he, he couldn't believe how dedicated the Jaguar workforce were. He said, you, you said you threw mud at them, they scraped it all off and got going again. You knocked them down, they got back up. He said, we can't believe it. And of course, the Ford quality standards, Q1 being their main quality standard, customer facing as well standard. Jaguar was their first manufacturing plant to ever get it in any of the Ford plants. And, and Padilla was saying, it doesn't matter what you do. He said, you knock them down, they bounce back. And that's what gave them the confidence that we could do it. And I, I, I feel proud that we were part of that team that helped that to happen. It's good old Midlands grit. That's what it is. Oh, Gets absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they should move Dunkirk slightly closer <laughs> to Carlson Bromwich. You know? <laughs> well, you know, far from the Midlands is a little bit of a story about a party, of course, that happens in parallel to this. And it's important because of the way the DB7 and the XK8 stories converge. Uh, there's yeah. a party at the Mealy Mealy, of course, and Walter Hayes meets the then boss of Aston Martin, who basically, after a few too many shandies, admits they're broke. And, of course, Walter <laughs> Hayes goes back to Ford and says, let's buy them. They did. And now you've got Aston Martin and Jaguar under the same ownership. And this is where it gets really interesting, doesn't it? Because effectively, yes. what was XK8 now becomes, for a short time at least, DB7 within the same yeah. company. But at some point, Jaguar say, actually, that was a quite a good idea. We ought to have done that as well. How did that yeah. story play out? Well, I, I don't think any of us, certainly I, I don't profess to know the full story, but yes, DB7, if you will, started off as the Jaguar project. That was to be the replacement to XS. Once they'd finally got their head around whether they were going to do a yet another facelift of XS or do something new. But of course, the product plan at Aston Martin, there wasn't anything in the short-term plan to help out. So there was no new product. And our understanding was that in light of what was happening here, let's move that over and make that a fully, fully fledged project. Because don't forget, D DB7 had an awful lot of shared componentry with Jaguar, not least of which was things like the, the engine, although it was, I, I might be wrong, but I think it was a bi-turbo six-cylinder, but it was certainly a, an AJ engine that was in there, um, a six-cylinder engine. It went like a scalded cat. Uh, a lot of it's, you know, things like its air conditioning systems, they shared that with Jaguar. But of course, then Ford also with Tibby door locks that we all shared in the industry. Aston, I believe, had them, we had them. So there was a lot of shared componentry going on there. And the floor pan, which is the most expensive part of any new car to develop, was ready-made. There it was. It was XJS. It had proven itself over. But when you think that that was designed back in the late 60s, <laughs> and it was still going by the 90s, you can't make this stuff up, can you? But um, it, it is extraordinary, and there, and there is that link there. And, of course, Ian Callum, the name Ian Callum then sort of, uh, because of his association with Aston Martin later on and the overtones, because sadly, just after the launch of the of the supercharged X, XK8, the, the XKR in 98, the following year, we lost Jeff Lawson as our, as our starting director, 
who was a personal friend as well. He was one of those great guys. Uh, he was on a main board director, but if ever you asked him to come and talk to your dealers and everything else, but Wayne, I've got to tell you, Jeff Lawson's language was choice. I have to tell you this. And I, just a small story because people who know Jeff, he was a character. He played guitar, long hair, and he used to use the F word, or I, I won't use it obviously, but that's the wording that he, he used. And I remember a short story. I rang his, I rang his office, secretary answered the phone. I said, is, um, it, it, I said, hi, Hazel. I, think, I can't remember her name. We'll call her Hazel. Hi, Hazel. Is, is Jeff in? She said, I'll just check. Jeff, he said, he said yes, who, who is it, Hazel? He said, it's Peter Leake from training. And his comment, I could hear him from back of back the office, was, what the F does he want? I thought, this isn't going to go well. Anyway, we had a conversation, and I'd, I'd invited him to come and talk to the dealers uh, on, a, on a particular event. And he asked him, like, I thought, this is awful. I can't let him loose in front of them. Anyway, he came for his bit in front of the dealers. And he gets his hairs all over the place. He gets up, very smartly dressed. And he said to me, he said, he, on his way up, he goes, you effing watch this, Peter. Watch the master. And he gets up, and I'm like this. I'm, Wayne, I'm dying in the corner. Not a single swear word. Not, not one. Clean as an absolute whistle. He had the meeting out of his hand. He comes back over. He grabs me by the arm. I'm, I'm good. Well done, Jeff. Fantastic stuff. He goes, I'm effing good, aren't I? <laughs> like that. And he went up loud. You see his shoulders doing this as he left. But he was one of Jaguar's characters and was, of course, the the, the lead designer for XK8. Fergus Pollock being probably the main designer for it, if you were, the one whose project it was, but working through Jeff. But I thought I'd just give you that as an aside. One of the great names, of course. I don't think he gets as much recognition as he deserves, really, in history, no. because, you know, mm-hmm. you immediately think of Malcolm Sayer as the legendary yes. Jaguar designer, but Jeff Lawson, yes. for what he achieved oh, and the way he turned yes. the company around as part of that team... Yes incredible yes he, did. he really should go yes. down in history and uh, i know that they they still name their apprenticeship schemes after him don't they down at Jaguar yes they do day, yes yeah. they do yeah. Yeah, wayne i think you're absolutely right he is one of those unsung heroes and malcolm sayer was an unsung hero in his time it wasn't until later when people realized what a great car e-type was and what a great car the d-type and c-types were that then he got the recognition he deserved but uh, but certainly Malcolm Sayer was never, ever one to be in the limelight. Never. Um, but Norman always used to speak very highly of him. But if, it, if ever you see pictures of Norman Norman and, and Malcolm Sayer together, it is little and large. <laughs> it is definitely little and large. No, but you're right about Jeff. Well, it was eventually to come to fruition in 1996, of course. And, yes. um, you know, not only was it the first whole new car under Ford ownership, it was the first V8 engine as well since the Daimler 250 of the 60s. Was yes, that was. significant, do you think, at the time? Did it feel significant? Well, uh, yes, at the time it did, because whilst we were all motor industry nuts, as you rightly say, we hadn't had an official Jaguar V8 engine. So this was what's happening here. I think probably to the diehards, the question more on their lips was not, wow, a V8, what are we going to do? It was more, is this goodbye to the V12? And I think everyone who's ever experienced the Jaguar V12, certainly since its 1981 Mayhead enhancements, was a legendary engine. And I think everyone thought, crikey, what's going to happen now? A V8 is what the Americans preferred. And don't forget, about 70% of all sports cars ended up in America. And V8s were the way to go. 
But V8s were becoming the engine. They were they were a strong engine in terms of their configuration. And if you got it a 90-degree V, it was it's the strongest you could get, apparently. So the engine had a load of mileage in it. The problem with the V12 was it was designed back in the late, well, the 1950s, if, if we're honest, the original drawings from Haynes and, 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 and Weslake and the others, uh, were, it, was, it, was, it, was an, it was much older and didn't see the, the light of day until XJ13 in the mid-60s, and that was a quad-cam engine. And then, of course, it went on, and it was 1970 or 71 when the E-Type first appeared with the V12. But the V12 is close to our hearts and, and still is, and still is. But at the time, the engine was of, of an age where to to get it to meet emission controls, you had to in, lengthen its stroke or increase the capacity. Of course, we lost horsepower, but we gained torque, uh, which is the way it's the playoff, isn't it, on those two? Uh, but V8 seemed to be the way to go. And this engine, which is, I hasten to add a Jaguar engine, before anyone says, oh, Ford helped you out. Because don't forget, I used to, part of my training was training the Jaguar team to man motor shows. And I've done motor shows for British AM and Jaguar from 1974 to 2012 when I left. So every year, bar one, I think, out of all those, we did motor shows. And the, the, the passion that people had for these cars, of course, I was at Geneva when we launched this, and it was only the diehard Jaguar customers on the continent who were, who were sort of, well, where's the V12? Whereas anybody, new customers coming from Mercedes or BMW were, wow, a V8, you've woken up at last, you know, and all that. Sort of, so you were dealing with almost like two, you're trying to keep two sets of customers happy. Always a juggling act, always a juggling act. But the V8 itself, it was met internally, you know, with, with, with a great deal of support. And, um, so the the, the Nickasil thing, which we're not going to talk about, of course, um, it was something that was that, that that became not an issue for every engine, because if it was, but it, the, the answer is simple. But it wasn't every engine, so that was something that we had to deal with, and and we did ultimately, as you know, mm. we dealt with it. But the engine itself was good; it was a good engine, and of course, not a problem in those engines now because the additive in no. fuel that caused the problem with the Nickasil has yes. since disappeared as, in the now ethanol era. So uh, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely I, spot on, right? You are right. I was, I was at, at the funeral yesterday. I was having a chat to uh, one of the engineers, and we were talking about this aspect of it, the, the, the Nickerson. He said, Peter, the concept of that was absolutely spot on right. He said, but it, as you know, it's all to do with cooling and the, and the additives that are in the fuel. So on motorbikes, and the engine heats up immediately. In a car, it takes a little while, and it's during that heating up period. He said, but, he said, the, the engines, he said, there are Nickerson engines going now. He said, and they are a damn good engine. Because as you rightly say, Wayne, all that issue now is gone. And if you've got a good one, you've got it. You've got it there. And of course, as you know, I drive an XK8, one of the early ones. But my engine is lined, I hasten to add. You know, the styling was unashamedly E-type. That's what I remember thinking about it when I first saw it. And I, it's yeah. one of those moments in my young life that yeah. I remember uh, the launch yes. of, of the XK8. And I remember it for a particular reason. So the Jaguar Enthusiast Club were very much involved in the launch of it. And it was this club that drove those cars around the country and had big parties right. for local enthusiasts around the country Brilliant. to welcome Brilliant. a new model, of course. And I remember yes. turning up and the XK8 had arrived in the Marshalls Jaguar dealership in Peterborough and everyone yes. was talking about it. And my dad said to me as a young lad, he said, come on, let's go and have a look at it. And we rolled up there, my dad's XJS, you know, and uh, which he still has to this day, by the way, some really? 25 years later. And um, 
we rolled up and we saw the car and we got wind of this party that was happening in the evening so um i'm not ashamed to say that we went back we got dressed up uh, we turned up to the party it was guest list only and we made up some excuse that we'd booked it through some charity or another <laughs> And, and and gate crashed the party. Um, I have to say, we did. We stayed for the launch and we stayed for all the speeches. But when all of the three course meals came out and, and there wasn't a place set for us, we did sort of just disappear out the back door. Sadly, yes. <laughs> a great well moment that I will always remember. Gate crash in the launch of the XKA, and I remember looking at it just thinking, one day. I'm going to yes. have one of those, and I think it was. Yeah. I, it did feel to me, even as a young lad, then that this was the E-type of my era. Was that the yeah. aim in Jaguar at the time? Was that the sort of feeling they were going for? Yes, Wayne. It's an interesting one. We always we we build it as the, we 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 build it to um, our customers as the spiritual successor. That was the phrase that was used because I think to say it's the successor to the E-type is is dangerous because we all know that the e-type was unique it was a unique motor car and you i, I think even even if people say today that the f-type is the replacement to e-type i would argue that as well i would say no because the e-type was in its day there was nothing else like it there was just nothing like it both in looks performance while well, enzo ferrari said it was the most beautiful car in the world i mean if it comes from a guy who can dream up a design on the back of a fag packet to come up with that comment is just superb um so to us it was spiritual successor and when you look at the style of the car the, the you know the proud bonnet uh, the, the bulge as it were the, the mouth the almost the contour the line of the car is is paying homage i think to to e-type uh which i think was the right thing to do I, it and it, i think it proved itself because we we built and sold 30 percent more xk8s and, and xkrs than we were scheduled to build we were going to build roughly seventy thousand. that's all in total for the whole time of build. We ended up doing 90,000. And uh, so it was that popular, the car, that it, it, it just naturally said, well, it's got an extended life here. And it moved from there. That spiritual homage to the E-Type was that yes. front grille, but it was an awkward detail to fit a number plate around. And you've seen all sorts of different placements of number plates ever since. Some are underneath, some completely obscure it, some are stickers on the bonnet. That, uh, you, can, you get the feeling that sort of Jeff Lawson and his team were told, no, you're having an E-Type grill and you will make it work. Was, do you think that was the case? <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm not so sure. I don't know. I think, I think, I think that gave them a starting point and a very strong starting point. And uh, yes, but also when you look at the grill of XK8 and then you look at the ill-fated F-Type, the XJ41, give or take, it's the same grill. And also the headlight layout, the setup there, very similar on the two cars. So clearly, I, I think it's one of those legends again that you say, there's the most iconic grill in the world, build something around it. And you go, right, okay. But I, I think that would that would not be doing it doing the stylist justice. I don't think it'd be nice to think so. But I think there was far more to it because on my talk that I do on the XKA, I show people and the audiences all can't believe what they're seeing are some of the designs that we were looking at. Uh, you know, to finally come up with the XKA uh, style and design, and some of them were just hideous. They really were. And one of them was because we were owned by Ford. Ford wanted to give their ten pennies, and they put a car in. Uh, a style in and we took one look at this and there's one or two scratching of heads and 
well, you can see why. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so but then the style they but submitted. Let's just let's just remember this is the era of the Puma and the Ka. Say yes, no more. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Ford Scorpio, you know, things like <laughs> yes, that. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's like the groundbreaking styles. You know, <laughs> we, we used to have Ford com- company cars at Jaguar, and my my mate who did te- technical training, internal technical training at Jaguar, he came into my office one morning. He said, "That's it." He said, I'm in a Scorpio, as you know. I said, oh, yeah. And interior-wise, they're beautiful. Uh, the interior of those Scorpios was something else. But the look, he said, oh, he said, I'm coming through Leamington Spa. I stopped the traffic lights, and there's a man and a woman on the pavement opposite, and he's got his window down. And he said to her husband, is it me, or is that car the most ugly thing you've ever seen? He said, that's it. Well, I got to work. I got out of it. I didn't want to be recognised. I thought, well, that's quite harsh, a little bit harsh, because it was a good car. Um, but yes, you're right. It, it was that era. So something similar turned up, let's put it that way, as a styling buck. But um, actually, interestingly, the styling buck's front, the front of that particular car, started to look like the beginning of uh, S-Type because obviously that was a couple of years on as well, if you remember, 98, 99. And you're thinking, hang on, I wonder where they got that idea from. And maybe, so every cloud, as it were, has a silver lining. Um, but there were some interesting designs submitted, and then they were told to go away and come up with it again. And that's when Jeff came in with, with, uh, with Fergus and the team with that style, and the rest is history. I think the one thing to remember about this, uh, we were talking about dealers earlier. Dealers are very critical of any new car, and, uh, and understandably, because they want to see it a success for them. They took it to the States and uh, Bob Dover, who was the, the, the director in charge of the whole uh, XK project, as he was revealing it, uh, the, the clay, it was there, a beautiful looking car, and there it was. It was spontaneous. The American dealers were on their feet even before he finished speaking. Standing, a standing ovation for this car. He hadn't finished. He, and he was, what was going on here? And wow, that was it. And they said, this is it. This is the one. And for dealers to say that, you know, that's good because they're with customers all the time. So they understand that side of it. Brilliant. Brilliant. And the end of the era, I guess, for the relationship where a British manufacturer is building a car with the utmost importance placed on the American market. That's not quite so important anymore, is it? And I'm no. guessing that's why they went, unlike the F-Type that we now have, they went for mm. a, a definite mix of E-Type cross with that grand touring mm. aspect of the XJS. Yes. The XJS yes. did that so well, didn't it? Yes. Absolutely. It was never a brutish sports car, the XK8, was it? It was a tourer. No. Yes, it was more. It was, you, you've hit on something that was a dilemma at the start, right at the start of the project. So once it was signed off, it was going to go down the, the GT route. So if you looked at XJS, when XJS was first introduced in 1975, um, from memory, there was no wood at all in it. There was nothing. It was just a plastic dashboard uh, with the up and over dials, if you remember, in the centre, uh, with the fastest moving dial being the fuel gauge. That was there, so that was there as well. Uh, and, and then it, it, it morphed into a, into a beautiful car. When we started fitting Burr, Burr Elm into it initially, and then... And then Burr Walnut came in and suddenly he thought, hang on a second, this car's really evolved. But with XK8, it was more, let's do this as a sports car. And, well, hang on a moment. The world's moved on. We've moved on. Our image is now more GT. But going back to winning the European Touring Car Championship, then Le Mans, that sort of rekindled the sports side. And as you know, when we launched the car, we launched it as, as a luxury and a sport. The main difference being uh, wheels, 
wheels, slightly upgraded suspension, interior with a bird's eye maple, I think it was initially, um, where a burr walnut in the in the in the luxury version. So we we realized that there was an opportunity for two here. But how far did you go? You know, this is always the dilemma. Do you make the luxury one real luxury? And then do you do rip everything out except the driver's seat on the, on the sport one and go, there you go, there's a sports car. Uh, it was a very fine balance. And we think we got the balance right. Um, as time moved on, of course, we came out with the with the, X, the XJR and the XKR 100s and all, this, and all these special cars, the Silverstone and various other versions of it, um, that we were able, as, as the car morphed its way forward, to evolve it. And, and as you see now, almost sadly, uh, we see little or no wood in the current sports cars. But, but why would we cry over spilt milk? Because at the end of the day, the E-Type, the only wood that the customer ever saw was the steering wheel. You know, there, was no, there wasn't anything else for them to see or get their hands on as such. So it was a dilemma to start with. But I think they got it right. It was a bit like S-Type as a style. That was a dilemma. Do you go retro or do you go modern? And that was a difficult one. We chose the retro in that respect. And the problem is you've got to make a car that people right now want to <clears> buy. <throat> Not people in the 60s yes. would have wanted yes. to buy. Yes. You need a car Absolutely. that people want to buy now. And also, yeah. if you make something that's too retrospective, it doesn't become a representative classic of what's happening now in history later no. on. You know, It doesn't yes. own its moment, does it? Um, no. And, uh, you know, that's what the E-Type did did very well. And I think the XK8 has proven itself to do that mm. as we look mm. back in hindsight. Because now, of course, they are being treated as classic cars of icons of the 1990s and well justified, I think. Yes, they are. I, 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 you make a good point, Wayne. And I think also that we only built 90,000 of them, whereas with XJS, we built uh, uh, just over 115,000 cars over a 21-year period. This was over a nine-call it nine-year period, 96 to 2005. Um, we built 90,000. And it's interesting to see that with 90,000, there won't be 90,000 in the world now. There'll be a lot less, obviously, with natural whatever. Um, and it, I believe it will be a classic. And, and talking to people in the club, and talking to Jaguar enthusiasts generally, there is a feeling that it will become, or it could well become a classic. I think that's true. But I've also heard that said about the 150, the, X, uh, the X150, which was the successor, the all-aluminium-bodied successor. And that was another step forward for the XK range, um, and, and a lovely car too, I hasten to add. But this car, I think this was... <sighs> It was at a period of time where Jaguar could have sunk or swung. And if we hadn't got the job one car done by June, I, th I think it was the 1st of June, I might be wrong on the date, but it was definitely June uh, 1996. If we hadn't got it done by then, I think Ford would have said, right, you've had your chance. Now we're going to run the show from now onwards. Um, and the guys and girls came to the party and they came to the party with a, with, with a quality car, dare I say, a quality car, brand new v8 engine in it by the way on the original engine the only ford component was the woodruff key at the end of the crank and that is a fact okay <laughs> that's the kind of sales and marketing fact we don't we're not worried about anything else that that was it and uh, yeah and it was it was such a poignant time in our in our history it really really was and of course the xk8 or the x100 as we know it was the last car to begin and end its life at brown's lane uh production finished on the xk8 in may 2005 and the factory with because xj was moved over to castle brom the factory closed in july and, it, and for me it was a very very sad time because 
Browns Lane was special. It was such a special place. And anybody yourself, anybody who's been, you get a feeling of a of a family there. It's a family environment. And I remember after the 88 Lamont, they brought the cars back, just as they did with the C types and D types. And the drivers came along as well. Workforce all out there in force in that wonderful, it's literally just up the road here. And the and the XGR9s bought in and lined up. Oh, they loved it. And that's what it was about. And I think this car epitomised that period, but was also a salute, a goodbye to what was then. Um, and that's it, really. Yeah. And, well, it did feel like a, a rebirth of Jaguar to those of us who were on the, the customer's side, as it were. And, yeah. of course, then the rebirth continued and we had the X-Type yeah. arrive in 2001, which was another fantastic yes. move forward and that, uh, yes. move that yeah. you know, really did take Jaguar into the more mainstream markets. And yes. Yes. When you look back on it now, Peter, and you look back at how the dealers launched that car and the excitement and the buzz that was yes. around it, do you look back on those days and wonder if a car could ever have that kind of excitement again like that? I think I think you've read my mind a little bit. Uh, I think we live in a different era, Wayne, now, don't we? We have social media. Yeah. Do you remember the old days? When the, I remember the launch of the Metro. British Island didn't get much right, but when they did things like launches, bl uh, billboards appeared all around the country. And I was based in Peterborough at the time uh, as a ref in the early 80s. But prior to that, with, with, with the launch of the Metro, there was just a car with a, a drape over it. And that was it. And they'd update it every, every now and then. And everyone was going, where's this car? Where's this car? You can't see that happening today, can you? There's social media, the spy cameras, oh, everything. It's not the same. But I think with, with XK8, we, we launched it in three stages. Um, we, we launched effectively the, the design, then the engine, and then, of course, the final launch as a total car. Uh, and it was handled extremely well. It was teasing people. I remember at Geneva, it was the, the buzz you got as an employee of the company, just seeing this thing there. It was extraordinary. And, it, and they on the launch day, they took the box off it. You probably saw that. It was an export box, nothing. Well, the story behind that was they... they it, before we all got there to man the stand, the day or so before, they were going to use uh, dry ice, you know, all this dry ice nonsense. So they got an XJS in. <laughs> this can only happen at Jagger. Right, we're going to do this. And a beautiful XJS, absolutely beautiful. There it was as, a, as, a, as the dummy car. And you put the box on and then you let rip with this uh, with this dry eyes. And they took it off and people were choking everywhere as this stuff come flying out. Anyway, and they and they were rehearsing and they were talking to the microphone, look back at the car. And somebody said, I, I think you need to look at the paintwork. And what this stuff had done was leave a grime all over the paint. I don't, I don't know what, how or why it happened, but it was just almost like a film over the car. It was horrible. So they said, right, we'll, we'll scrap the, uh, the, the, the dry ice. <laughs> and it felt as though on the day, well, this is a bit of a cheap launch, isn't it? Where's all the razzmatazz? And then they told us what had happened. But it was done really well. And you could hear the gasp in the crowd. You know, the, 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 uh, they did the launch on the day. And then, of course, when we revealed the cars to the general public, Again, like so many Jaguars, like XJ220, it was the, the alleyways were all just blocked with people wanting to have a look at the car. And it was such a, well, it is such a pretty car, the XK8. And still, it still holds, to my mind, uh, a, a label high up in the prettiest of all Jaguars. It's way up there because it, it is such a good-looking car. But can you imagine launching that onto the public of 1996? It's bizarre, isn't it? It's yeah. just bizarre. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and when 
when you look back on those years of yours at Jaguar and you yeah. look at Jaguar now and you look forward, mm. where has Jaguar got to go, do you think? And what do you think the future holds? Well, it, it's always a difficult one, this, because I think everyone's got their opinions. And I, I, I'm obviously friends with so many people from different eras of Jaguar. And you get everything from, wow, this announcement about going all electric by 2025. Great. We're going to re-establish ourselves. And then you get the diehards on the other side saying, we need a V12 engine. We need a V12 you know, you know, and, and I don't knock that because I fully grasp it. But I think Jaguar needs to do something. And I think this possibly is the way forward, the reimagining of Jaguar. Um, because let's face it, it's going to be a greener world, and rightly so, as we move forward. Um, yes, the likes of you and I, Wayne, are going to miss the smell of Castro GTR and, and all that, or Mobile X, or whatever the, 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 oil, the oil was. We're all going to miss that. But the reality is that the world's changing. And I think to be bold as they've been, I think could work. I think oh, it's got to work. Let's put it that way. But I think it could work. Because if they, if it, if they do it properly and they start to lead the industry, It'll be the first time we've led the industry since we gave the industry disc brakes. <laughs> and people often forget that. Okay, we didn't invent the disc brake, but we uh, we, we developed it with Dunlop to work. Um, and I think we could do well. But I think there's a word of caution here because I'm like so many Jaguar people. There's nothing like a good six-cylinder V6, eight-cylinder or V12. You can't beat that. But the reality is, Wayne, as we all know, the world is changing and if we can lead that change rather than be dragged screaming along with it i think we have we stand far more chance of success and i do wish jlr all the very best with this i really do fingers are, fingers crossed but i don't think they need to be but the fingers are crossed that it's a success for them well i sincerely believe that the i-pace will have its moment in history as a turning yes. point uh, for yes. the automotive industry because yes it really yeah. is the first non-tesla luxury yes. car that yes. was practical to use every day mm. and was mm. relatively affordable and i think that will go mm. down in history but um for those of us who still like our internal combustion engines yeah. i think the yes. best thing we can do is support the electric future whilst protecting our our yes. right and freedoms to use our historic vehicles on the road for many years to come and i think that's the well, best I best compromise Wayne, I think I think you need a job as an MP here. Actually, I think you do very, very well promoting the concept, respecting the past, and embracing the future. Um, I, I agree with you entirely, and I think you, you mentioned the iPace. Of course, it won awards in its first year for design and everything else. So again, Jaguar is showing its capability of doing these things properly, and I think that's key, isn't it? That we've—it's not just a, a rabbit out of a hat. Yes, we're going to produce all electric cars; they're all going to be great. We've already started, as you say, we've started to establish a pedigree already with iPace. That is just the start. And of course, now we can accelerate that and start moving it forward. It's uh, been amazing to talk to you, Peter. And uh, I think we could go all day, actually, talking about we, Jaguar we and the history. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh, but yeah. Perhaps we shall have to do more of these in the future. But um, Yes, I, I think so. I think, yes, because, I mean, Jaguar is full of stories, Wayne, isn't it? From anybody you talk to will have a story about Jaguar. You just and some of them are just so funny, and uh, you, you you have to smile. You just have to smile because it's a great company, and and I thoroughly enjoyed my th thirty eight years with the company. It was just tremendous, absolutely tremendous. Would never replace it. Never replace it. Peter Leake, thanks for joining us. Wayne, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Jaguar Racing Diary.
Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. So we're back in the workshop preparing the XJR ready for the 2021 season. As I said on last week's podcast, um, if you can remember back to last season, we had this kind of continual issue at certain circuits um, where we were just running a little bit hotter than what we expected. Um, we had the head gasket issue um, and, and really looking back over some of the data and stuff, the only thing we can really point that to is that we are just running it slightly hotter than what we should do. Um, we changed over to the front mounted intercooler setup um, with the air to air last season that was the first time running that so if you can imagine we've got quite a large intercooler in front of the radiator that is going to restrict a little bit of airflow and there's other factors as well um, we went over to a, a slightly smaller aluminium radiator so that we could fit it at the further forward in the car with the intercooler so we have reduced the cooling system very slightly which ultimately we think is is what's causing this issue so as you know it was only at certain circuits which was really frustrating so it must be certain loads that are causing it um, we never had any issues in testing on the dyno but then again as i've also explained before we can't get the same amount of load on the dyno as you can on track ultimately so um, we went back to the drawing board with that over the winter really and we've actually changed um, the, the intercooler and radiator assembly completely so we've had to do a fair amount of work to do this which is going backwards a little bit but we just want to to make sure that we are 100% stable on this fact so is what we've actually decided to do um, is one of the things that we had massive problems with in the past was intake temperatures and that was when we were running the water-cooled system um, this uh, last season when we were running the air-to-air -air, we had absolutely no issues at all it was so stable um, that it just wasn't even on our radar as a concern so is what we've actually decided to do is to reduce the size of the intercooler very slightly um, we have gone a little bit thicker um, which doesn't always help with cooling because it's uh, actually surface area which is the most uh, important with radiators um, so we did that last season with a radiator we went thicker but slightly smaller so it's what we've decided to do is to go a lot bigger with the surface area of the radiator and thinner and we've had to modify the front end of the car slightly to allow that to fit and change all of the pipe work over so that was a little bit awkward and the plumbing of the setup now was a lot more awkward um, we run electronic water pump so we've had to relocate where that is and all the pipes so um, it sounds very very simple on paper but we have had to do quite a lot of um, work to make it work so we, we've had the car back up on the dyno and I'm fairly confident um, that we've now rectified that issue. Ultimately, we're not really going to know till we start getting it back out on track like last season. Um, for most of the season, it was fine. It was when we were starting to find the limitations of the car on really getting to grips and ultimately getting used to the car again when we really started pushing it that's when we were seeing the slightly hotter than expected intake temps now Fruxton was my last round that was an extra that we did with a classic touring car and as you all know we are racing with a classic touring car um, this year which I'm really excited about and, and it's going to have some TV co coverage so hopefully you can all actually watch the racing um, and understand some of the things that I've been talking about and physically see it so that's really really exciting <laughs> That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. 
and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. Oh, 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 oh